Okay, folks, I'm going to get underway. We've got some wonderful stuff, wonderful information uh, to cover. Uh, I wanted to tell you, uh, I, I, if you know, most of you know Kevin Garrett. He's been in the class uh, several times, but um, Kevin has this. Oh, and we got these tracks as well. Uh, I've got a couple right here. Uh, which Jesus do you trust? Which is based on um, a track that you would you could share with a, a Catholic person. And then this is a packet of tracks in a little plastic case that are relevant to the Catholic individual. Um, but again, I encourage you, before you give them away, make sure you read them yourself so you're okay, you're comfortable with giving them. And then at the, at the last class, I'm going to talk a lot about that, about the matter of, well, how should we reach out to folks that are in, involved in that system? Because the majority of the folks that you will talk to um, don't really understand the fullness of Catholic orthodoxy. Um, they know a bit here and there. Um, their attendance is usually driven because it's uh, a tradition. Uh, it's something passed down to them from family. Many, many, many people are what I describe as cradle Catholics. That means they were born into a Catholic family. If they went to Catholic grammar school, they'll know a little bit more, or Catholic high school, they'll know a little bit more, but you would be surprised at how much they do not know about the scriptures. Um, that's the biggest shocker for most of them is when they uh, are suddenly in the presence of the word and they find out that there are things in the word that contradict the system they believed. So we'll get more into that, but I wanted you to know this one will hand out to you today. Matter of fact, uh, uh, Pat, would you just make sure everybody gets one or two of these or whatever they want? And then when Kevin, when, when you see Kevin Garrett, he's got these packets uh, that you can, uh, you can, he'll order them for you. And so you can get one of those, okay? So I wanted to make sure you got that. All right. Um, while Pat does that, um, I'm going to have to draw your attention now to the sheets, but I want to do that after I pray. So let's pray together. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, it's with great joy that I stand before these people today and uh, present to them the truth about the difference between a church like ours and the Roman Catholic Church and its belief system and our belief system. And there are some major, major differences. And so we want to make sure that we get them, we understand them, and we know how to respond properly and Christ-like to those individuals who are in a system that actually impedes their entrance into eternal life. And Lord, help us to convey to them the importance of what we learn today in church, that there is a way, there is a way, and that way is exclusive. There are no other options. There is just the way, and that is Christ, and that is his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. And our faith in that is what opens up the door for us to enter into your gracious presence. And so today, as we discuss these things, help these dear people have hearts that are ready for the implanting of the truth. And the Lord provide for me clarity of speech and thought so that I can connect those things together and present this in a way that helps us all to have a growing understanding. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you look at this title here and don't let it scare you, uh, a monarchical episcopate papal primacy and leadership in the church. So far, what we have discussed is that there is a difference between um, an evil evangelical and Bible-believing church in the Roman Catholic Church. We learn first in terms of the fact that we have differing authorities, differing authorities. And I told you that was a major issue. Uh, we are different because we have different authorities. The Catholic Church has three authorities, we learn. It is not only the Bible, which they, they say is divinely inspired. They call it the Word of God. Uh, perhaps the biggest difference in their dealing with the Bible 
is that they also believe that the church has the right to the final interpretation of the Bible. So they believe that the Bible is God's word, but the church is the one who provides for you the proper interpretation of scripture. Uh, when they fought Martin Luther over this issue, they said, we cannot place the Bible into the hands of the lay people, because if we do, we're going to get all sorts of false doctrine. So they wanted to be the final control. Now, there's a sense in which we have something akin to that, but not as powerful and strong and authoritative as that. And that is why you have elders in your church. They're the ones who are supposed to help you uh, if you're trying to find an understanding of a passage or to correct the understanding you have if it's incorrect. But uh, that's a big difference in their authority. And the second authority in the Catholic Church is sacred traditions. We talked about that in the first study. Uh, those are beliefs that have been held in the Catholic Church over time that became recognized by the leadership of the Catholic Church and ultimately the Pope as being dogmas, doctrines. Uh, because remember, in, in the Catholic theology, their sacred tradition is equal to the scriptures. They say the, the word of God, and this is found in the Boston Catechism, very bold print, the word of God is the written word and the spoken word, the traditions. And so they believe that that is the scripture or scripture and tradition formulate the word of God. And then, of course, the third one, we're sort of going to be investigating that today a little bit, is the Pope. And when he speaks from his throne, a particular teaching or belief that is now an official doctrine. Get that. It's the Pope, when he speaks from his throne, from his position of authority, who says, this is a doctrine. The final time, or the, not the final time, I shouldn't say that. The last time that that was done uh, was in 1950 by Pius, Pope Pius XII. And Pope Pius XII declared that from his throne that when Mary died, she was not buried, but she was assumed into heaven. Now, that's not found anywhere in Scripture. Next week, when we start covering the theology of Mary, I'll show you everything the Bible says about Mary. We're going to look at everything it says about Mary. And you're never going to find in the Bible any word that when she died, her body was gathered up by angels and she was taken into heaven. That's called uh, the assumption of Mary. Matter of fact, if you drive around in your communities, you're going to find Catholic churches called the Assumption Catholic Church. And you may have thought that that has something to do maybe with the resurrection of Jesus or something. No, they're, they're named after that dogma that was discovered or not discovered, officially dogmatized in 1950. And so he has the ability to do that even today. Uh, and that's what worries a lot of conservative Catholics. Just a little backstory on this. Uh, many of the conservative Catholics, because the present pope is from the liberal branch of Catholicism. And so there's a concern on their part that he might dogmatize something that really would the conservatives would find to be appalling. Like he might say, for example, that uh, homosexuality is an acceptable marriage. Uh, he may do something like that. And of course, the conservative Catholics would be in an uproar over that. So, so there's a concern. He hasn't done anything like that, but there's a concern because he comes from the liberal branch, the Jesuit branch of, um, uh, of what do they call that? Uh, there's a tame name for that. They're uh, uh, the Jesuit grouping of priests. Jesuit priests are the ones you find, for example, in South America. Uh, who teach something called liberation theology. And liberation theology is the marriage of Christianity to communism. That's what liberation theology is. Uh, the John Paul, when he was alive, uh, he landed a plane, his plane landed in South America. And one of the priests who was one of the promoters 
of liberation theology came and bowed before him like they do, knelt before him. And they showed this on the TV, and the Pope was given, you know, just yelling at him, and he was yelling at him about his acceptance of liberation theology because the conservatives wouldn't agree with that. So we have it too. We have Protestant liberals and Protestant conservatives and all that, but they have it in theirs as well. And so we looked at that, and there's a difference between us and the Catholic Church concerning authority because we only have one authority, and that one authority is Scripture. So we don't have three authorities. As a matter of fact, just a little side issue, denominationalism really is the product or the manifestation of what people think of the Bible and how they interpret it. All the denominations that you see out there are a reflection of what they think of the Bible and how they interpret the Bible. What's their view of the Bible and how do they understand the Bible? So you have a Methodist liberal church that says we have several authorities that determine our faith. One is the Bible, but it's not the Word of God. It, it is a witness of God but not the Word of God. The other one is our traditions in our church. The other one is our culture, what's happening in our culture. And the other one is your personal experience, your personal pilgrimage. So all of those things determine what they believe. Now, we would reject that. That's why we're not a part of a liberal Methodist movement because we have conflict at the point of their understanding of the Bible and how they understand the, uh, their view of the Bible and how they understand the Bible. So keep that in mind. That's, that's, that's really the, if you say, why in the world do we have so many denominations? We have so many denominations because of the differing views on the Bible and how to understand the Bible. And that gives birth to all kinds of denominational tricks. The other thing that we, you learn from uh, me and Chesley is that there's a difference in Catholic theology on the doctrine of justification. Uh, we believe that you are justified or declared right standing with God on the basis of faith alone. And we believe that that justification is positional. In Roman Catholicism, they believe that justification is a process. It's something you must earn. And it begins with the sacrament of baptism. And the best way to end it is by your good works and your obedience to all the other sacraments, cooperating with the cross work and resurrection of Christ, cooperating with him by your obedience to the sacraments and your good works and all of that. And hopefully, at the end, you'll be declared right standing. Whereas the Bible teaches that if a person trusts the salvation of their soul to the death and resurrection of Christ, they are justified. So those are some of the things we looked at. Now today we're going to say, hey, you know what the other big difference is? How our churches are led. Big difference between how the authority, the functional authority in the Catholic Church operates and the functional authority of a church like ours operates. Two different, two different systems, two different formulas. And so we're going to begin by describing the Roman Catholic formula, which is in that title, monarchical episcopate. Now the word episcopate comes from uh, the Greek word um, episkopo, which means to oversee, to oversee, to overlook. It is often translated, matter of fact, in the King James Bible, the word is translated bishop. Um, and so the Catholic Church and some other denominations put it this way, are bishop-oriented. Now the problem we're going to learn with the Catholic Church is uh, some other denominations have a multitude of bishops. But in the Catholic Church, they say all of the authority, the supremacy over the church, rest in the Bishop of Rome. So this is what we're going to be learning about, that the authority he has, he is the vicar of Christ, 
That means he is the substitute of Christ on earth. However, you're going to learn from Pastor Rich as he gets into the 14th chapter that the vicar of Christ is the Holy Spirit. It's not any man from Rome. But in the Catholic theology, all authority really belongs to him. And that's a big difference between our church and theirs, and we'll get to that. So follow along in these notes here. I hate to read things to adults, but it makes me feel better that I speak it out loud and you hear it, and you're reading it, and maybe you'll get it. But look at what it says here. In the Episcopal form of church government, the office of the bishop is a key authoritative role. The word episcopal is from the Greek word for bishop. In this system, the local church is a part of a hierarchy of clergy who oversee the, and govern the church denomination. This usually involves regional dioceses, bishops headed by an architect, general assemblies, and ruling councils. The denominations that are governed in this way would be the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, the Anglican churches, Methodist churches, and Lutheran churches. But even though those other churches, churches are, um, have a, a bishops in charge of them, what makes the Catholic Church unique even from the ones named here is that the Bishop of Rome is the main guy. Get that? That's not necessarily true in the Lutheran Church or in the Anglican Church. They have bishops, then they have archbishops and all of that underneath the bishops, but... In the Catholic Church, there's just one guy. And let's read on. But what, the, what makes the Roman Catholic Church unique in their model of Episcopal government is the matter of papal primacy. The Pope is viewed as having universal jurisdiction over all Roman Catholic churches. And the church in Rome is viewed as the mother church. The decisions that the Pope makes regarding the governance of the Roman Catholic Church are to be in partnership with the College of, Council, Card, College of Cardinals. But ultimately, the functional authority of the Roman Catholic Church belongs to the Pope. One of the things we're going to learn is when he speaks ex cathedra, they're going to say that whatever he declares is infallible. It's not subject to reformation. So what he declares, when he declared that Mary was assumed into heaven, that's now infallible. And nobody in the Catholic Church can try to reform that view or change that doctrine. That doctrine is in stone. Because he is the ultimate authority. Remember, he is the substitute of Christ on earth. He is the successor to Peter who they believe is the rock that Jesus talked about when he said uh, to Peter that, uh, you know, upon this rock I will build my church. And their interpretation of that is Peter is the rock. So the church is built on Peter and its successors, which would be all of the popes that would succeed Peter. Uh, next paragraph, third paragraph, papal authority is not merely a teaching authority. It is a governmental authority. Thus, the Pope has jurisdiction over the discipline and the government of the whole church. This is what Roman Catholics call the primacy of jurisdiction. He has the right to rule. He has the right to reign. Matter of fact, why do we use the word monarchical? It comes from the word monarch. It's like a king. So it's a system. It's a system of governing in which there is one individual who's the ultimate authority. There may be other offices below that. If so, if you were to build their authority structure, you have one and you may have other cardinals and archbishops and all of that, but ultimately the authority rests with the one. And that's the way it is. That's why you have papal primacy. He runs the church. That's why when my friend from South Holland, Illinois came to know Christ, he said he's going to make it his mission to change the Catholic Church from which he came. He wanted to go back to the Catholic Church and change it. And I told him, well, it's not in South Holland. If you want to make a change, you've got to make an appointment in Rome with the man. <laughs> and he's going to say, get out of here. <laughs> 
is not going to allow you to make the change. But that's, that's the only way you can change is if the Catholic Church has its councils, which heavily involves the Pope, and he gives the sanction to whatever they decide because he is the man, he is the guy. Next paragraph, the Pope has authority to declare new doctrines or dogmas that must be observed by all Roman Catholic churches. Now there's another difference I'm gonna tell you about, about the Catholic Church and New Community Church because of that sentence. We believe in what is called closed-end revelation. What does that mean? That means we believe that we have all the revelation that God wants us to have from Genesis to the book of Revelation. There is no new revelation being given. No new revelation. Well, when you think about it, the book of Genesis tells us about what? The beginning. The beginning. What does the book of Revelation tell you about? The end. <laughs> and everything in between, you know, tells you the story of redemption and how Christ came to this earth and Israel and God working through Israel and the covenant promises he made to Israel and all of that's in between. But there is no more revelation. Matter of fact, in the book of Jude, which was written in the late, probably the late of the 90s, uh, Jude says that the faith, and it might, what he means by the faith is not the subjective faith that you exercise to believe in Jesus, but the objective faith of the doctrines of Christianity. He said the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. And it's contained in the scripture. We believe in closed-end revelation. The Roman Catholic Church believed in open-ended revelation. Because otherwise, then how's the Pope going to add new dogmas? How is the sacred tradition going to be considered equal to scripture? So you have to say, yeah, there's more. The Catholic Church would say, no, that, that's wonderful. The revelation we have in, in the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it's wonderful. It's the word of God, but it's not the end of the revelation. The, the, the sacred traditions that we observe and obey religiously are a reflection of new revelation. New revelation, Mary was assumed into heaven. New revelation, Mary was born without sin and lived her entire life without sin. The immaculate conception. You say, well, wait, wait a minute. That, that's not in the Bible. It's new revelation. Charismatic churches, just to give you, in the Protestant circle, many of them do not believe in closed-ended revelation. God is speaking to people all the time. The end result is that the Holy Spirit gets credit for things he never said and things he never did, you see. So it's a dangerous thing, again, how you understand the Bible you know, is it the word of God? Is it the final saying? Is it the final revelation? Or is there more revelation to come? And of course, we would teach, no, there's no more revelation to come. So I'm not gonna go and visit the Kansas City prophets. I heard about them, these guys that are given new revelation. Because, well, first of all, one time when a lady came up to me, <laughs> I was speaking at Camp Forest Springs, and she said, oh, I could see that the anointing of God is on on you. And she said, I have a new revelation from God for you. And I said, ma'am, I appreciate that. I said, I've got 66 books of God's revelation and I'm not anywhere near finished with that. Please don't give me more. I'm still working on what I've got, <laughs> trying to understand what it says. And I don't need another, I don't need another page <laughs> uh, because I'm still trying to understand what God has revealed to us. So that one sentence, I just wanted to add that to it. The next uh, sentence, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is from his throne or a seat of authority, the newly revealed dogma, doctrine, or moral mandate is infallible and applicable to the whole church. This is in conjunction with the doctrine of papal infallibility. This, is the, this authority is strengthened by the idea that the Pope is seen as the vicar of Christ. That means he is the substitute of Christ on the earth. It is 
in the fourth and last chapter of the dogma, dogmatic constitution that we find the definition of papal infallibility. So I'm using their writings to give you the definition. This is a Roman Catholic Church definition of papal infallibility, and I'm quoting them. We teach and define as divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, Thedra, that is when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses by the divine assistant promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning our faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are themselves and not by the consent of the church irrevocable. So again, what they're trying to say, and it's kind of worded in a uh, overbearing way anyways, but the point is that when he declares a dogma, a doctrine, it's infallible. It's, it's new revelation. It now has to be obeyed. And so there's so many things that come from traditions in the Roman Catholic Church, a whole mass. You, you cannot find the mass in the Bible, but the whole idea of that is from traditions, from papal um, affirmation of that being a part of the practice of the Roman Catholic Church. The whole idea of the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the, the elements of communion become the body of Christ, um, that's not found in the Bible. But the Pope, and with the council, the broader council of the Council of Cardinals, they come to those conclusions and now they have to be obeyed. So you have to, this is their authority, and this is why I wanted to make sure that you get this. Uh, let's take a look at an example of it. An example of the exercise of this doctrinal authority happened in 1854 when Pope Pius IX, without consulting the College of Cardinals, which, by the way, he can do. He can use the, Cardinal, the College of Cardinals as kind of a broader base of counsel, but he doesn't need to. Why? Why do you think? He's the Pardon me? He's the, He's the ultimate authority. So, I mean, he did, so he didn't, without the consulting the College of Cardinals or the bishops, issued an infallibus dios, ineffable God, means it's hard to express who God is, too extreme to, extreme to, too extreme to express in words. A papal encyclical in which he declared the immaculate conception of Mary the teaching that Mary had no original sin and declared it um, a de fide doctrine, of the faith doctrine. And so that again uh, makes Mary something different than what the Bible says about her. Uh, matter of fact, in her great Magnificat, which is her prayer after finding out that she was now uh, pregnant with the Messiah, uh, one of the first things she did is she blessed the Lord God who is her Savior. Um, now, who needs a Savior? A sinner. A sinner. <laughs> um, and she was, she was you, you and I must have profound respect for the servanthood of Mary and the example that she left us, profound. But we cannot have an adoring respect for her. Um, and we'll see that as we go into the study of Mary. But to believe that Mary was born without original sin is to equate that to the virgin birth of Christ. Because that was the result of the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus escaped the racial contamination of sin. If he had been born of Joseph and Mary, he would not have but he was immaculately conceived and he entered this world. He had no sin and he never committed sin. That's why he was a perfect lamb who could bear our sins. But that's not true of Mary. But that was an official dogma. That's an official doctrine. 
And if you were to argue with a pope, he would say, no, that is scripture. And you would say, well, wait, it's not in scripture. He'd say, no, you'll, you, you're misunderstanding. Scripture includes not only the written stuff, it's the trans, uh, uh, verbal stuff passed on over the years. And that's the word of God. So he would say that is the word of God because I declared it to be <laughs> that thing to be a belief. Uh, okay, so let's take a look. Um, did I start? I didn't start to read the top of page two, did I? Okay. So to summarize, the monarchical episcopate with papal primacy means that the pope, being a succession, succession of Peter, possesses the primacy of uh, jurisdiction over the Roman Catholic Church. It is in this exalted position he can declare a particular teaching in the church to be official dogma, practice, or moral directive that must be believed and practiced by all Catholics. Even if the doctrine, practice, or moral directive is without biblical support, when he declares some teaching, doctrine, tradition, or practice from his position of the, or throne, ex cathedra, his declaration is infallible and not subject to reformation. Now, why is that again? Why, why, tell me, why is that true? He declares a doctrine and that's it. It's not subject to change. Why is that true? He's the man. He's, he's the substitute of Christ on earth. Next paragraph. But what does the Bible reveal about how the church is to be led? First and foremost, the Bible is very clear that the undisputed head of the church is our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to look at those verses, uh, at least a couple of them, in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, 20... 18 through 23. Yeah. In verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart, this is a prayer of Paul for the church in Ephesus, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So one of the things that even a local church, if it's biblical, would never dispute, and that is that Christ is the head of the church and that local church belongs to him. It does not belong to those in leadership positions. What we're going to learn is that they mediate the head of the church's authority. They mediate that authority to the church. But those in leadership positions are not the head of the church. The head of the church is always Christ. And when leadership in a church forgets that, then they get into the false notion of becoming little mini messiahs uh, and they do great damage to the body of Christ. You are not the head, but your job, if you are chosen by the Holy Spirit, one of the things I'm going to make very clear to you is that anybody who's in a leadership position in the church is somebody who's been put in that position, selected by the Holy Spirit. He's not elected. He's not nominated. None of the things that we do in a lot of churches, uh, he is not that. He's raised up by the Holy Spirit. The job of the existing elders is to recognize him to be qualified 
for a leadership position in the church based on the godly characteristics that are found in the Bible and the skills necessary for the office. But once he's in that position, he's not the head of the church. The head of the church is always Christ. And the job of those in leadership in a local church is to teach that church what the head has revealed and to teach it all. That's why we like to do expository preaching because expository preaching is the best way to let Jesus speak to his church. The best way. Just verse by verse, let him talk to the church. Help the people understand what he's saying, but let him talk to his church. And so that just kind of introduces the topic that we're looking at. But take a look at the next passage there in Colossians 1, 17 and 18, just to reaffirm what I just said. 17 and 18, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might, that he himself will come to have first place in some things. No, that's the reversed American Standard Version. He may have first place in what? Everything. Everything. So he is number one in the church. However, in the divine providence of God, he has seen to it that each of his local church, churches, have essentially a plurality plurality. That's a big difference between the Catholics and a church like ours. We have a plurality. Many uh, men, godly men raised up by the Holy Spirit, uh, recognized by the existing leaders as possessing the character and the skills to operate as an elder, which is also in the Bible described as a bishop, overseer, and who is also described in the Bible as a shepherd, a poimeno, a, a one who shepherds, leads, guides, teaches, feeds, instructs the body of Christ, protects the body of Christ. And so, and then to assist them, we're going to learn, according to the Bible, there is the serving office. The elder office is the teaching and functionally authoritative office. They don't have the authority of Christ, but they, have the, they, they don't have the same equal authority, but they take the authority of Christ and mediate it to the local church. And then helping them to do this job is the office of deacons. And the deacon gets his name and his job description from that title. Deacon means to serve. And that's why the Bible does not go into great detail about the things that a deacon must do in terms of service because service is so broad that he's to do whatever needs to be done to serve the body of Christ. He is not an accountability group for the elders. Deacons are in subjection to the elders, you see but rather they are to liberate the elders so that the elders can stay focused in doing their job. And their job primarily is exhorting and teaching and instructing the people in the body of Christ, overseeing the affairs of the body of Christ. Matter of fact, their titles in some way describe something about their position. The word elder, presbyteros, you hear Presbyterian in that, Presbyteros is not referring to an elderly man necessarily, although it could. It's referring to any man who is mature in the faith. He has a level of maturity in which he knows how to have a workable knowledge of Scripture. He knows the doctrines. Because one of his jobs is to protect the church. He has to defend the church and protect the church. And he, he must stand at the door and say, no, that doctrine is not tolerated in this church. He has to do that. But in order for him to do that, he has to have a workable knowledge of the, of the church. 
And I've seen in some of our contemporary churches where they're allowing certain things. Uh, one college guy was telling me, oh, look at this Velvet Elvis book, or whatever it was, or The Shack. Yeah, we're discussing that in our Sunday school. Where are the elders who come in and say, wait a minute, this stuff does not correlate with the orthodoxy of the teaching of Scripture. So that's one of their jobs. However, in American churches, unfortunately, we thought we love the Constitution of the United States. We should. It's a great, great document. It's a great document for our nation, and I respect it. But it has no business in the church. And so what we did is we began to formulate our churches in accordance with the Constitution of the United States rather than the scriptures. So now we have, uh, in many churches, just one elder. And then after that, we have uh, deacons or trustees. We have business meetings that are governed by Robert's rules. Um, we vote on everything. Not found in the Bible. Not found in the Bible. There were elders and there were deacons. And the ultimate decision maker are the elders. Now, that doesn't mean that the elders don't get counsel from the people they're leading. It's a stupid leader who just runs around making decisions without considering how it impacts other people. That's stupid. That's dumb leadership. You, you might say, well, wow, I work for such a corporation. <laughs> uh, th that's the truth. There are some corporations, I don't understand it. It's just not smart leadership where people show up on a Monday and they find out that everything's changed and they got till Friday to learn it. And no one asked that guy who does this little thing with making the widgets whether or not this is going to help or hurt the production of the widgets. And that's stupid leadership. Um, leadership in the church is by the elders. They have the functional authority, but they need to talk to the people under them. So they're called elders because of spiritual maturity. They're called overseers because that's what they do. They oversee uh, the office. And then they're called shepherds because they shepherd the flock of God. Matter of fact, take a look in Acts 20, and I'll show you the chief job or chief, chief job description of an elder. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, he says, to, by the way, I should have told you, Paul is speaking to the elders, plural. Let me just say this as a little extra. Uh, there is no place in the New Testament where you find a church that is led by one elder. Consistently in the New Testament, it's a plurality. There's no one elder and a bunch of deacons. It's consistently elders. And this happens to be, he's talking to the elders in the church from Ephesus. Uh, if you look at, just to prove that out to you, uh, take a look in verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called him to him the what, folks? The elders of the church in Ephesus. And so he's talking to them, and he gives them their chief job description in verse 28. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To do what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. All three terms describing that office of elder are used in this text. In verse 17, they're called what? Elders. Look at what it says here in 28. He says... For them, to, the Holy Spirit has made them what? What did he make them? Overseers. And then he tells them, shepherd. 
that's the word pastor. So they're called elders, they're called overseers because an overseer is what they do, and they're called shepherds because that's what they do. And it was Jesus, and we don't have time this morning in the text, but in the 21st chapter of John, taught them really in this interaction with Peter um, the best way for an elder to express his love for the church. You remember that conversation? Remember Peter denied Jesus three times? So Peter, after the Lord had resurrected and was about to ascend into heaven, uh, the Lord said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responded. It's very interesting in the Greek. He says, do you agape me, the highest form of love there is? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. <laughs> which is a second degree. Um, uh, yeah, I have a fond affection for you. I really do. And then what did he tell him? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, tend to my sheep. Watch over them, feed them, tend to them. And the third time, the same thing. Matter of fact, Peter was so distraught that the Lord asked him three times, you know, that, that same question. And so the, for the elders today, the way that we learn to demonstrate love for Christ is by feeding his sheep, tending to his sheep. If you love Jesus, elder, like you say you do, then tend to his sheep, feed his sheep, feed his flock, shepherd the flock of God, chief role of an elder, shepherd the flock of God. And then he reminds us that it was the, uh, the Holy Spirit who raised them up to the office. It was not, they didn't get there by election. They didn't get there by nomination. Uh, they got there because the Spirit of God had his hand upon them and you could see it in them. You could see Christ-like character in this person. You could see that they had an ability to teach. And you say, why is that important, the ability to teach? That is one of the chief functions of an elder. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 says an elder must, must be able to teach. Must be able to teach. Uh, that means he must have the capability of imparting divine truth in such a way that he enhances the understanding of the people of God, of God's word, so that they might apply it. So you can't have an elder. There's no such thing as sort of an administrative elder who doesn't ever teach, but just kind of takes care of all of the stuff going on at the church and builds the buildings and all of that. And then a teaching elder. No, they're all teaching elders. Now there may be one or two that do that for a living. In other words, they're full time engaged in the office of an elder. And then in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it tells you to make sure that you respect them. You give them double honor. And that double honor is you respect them for the office they occupy. But the other part of that honor is remuneration. You don't muzzle the ox. You make sure that they get fed. <laughs> you pay them. That's another way of putting it. Uh, because they're in this for their living. They're not farming, or they're not an electrician or a plumber. They are doing this for the entirety of their life. And so it is the job of the congregation to see to it that they are properly paid. So what's your reaction to elders? Um, take a look in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Um, going off script here on purpose because of time. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse, uh, what did I want, seven? Yeah, seven and then verse 17. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. In first Peter chapter five, Peter says, you know, another task uh, of an elder is to be an example to the flock. 
And so the writer of Hebrews said, hey, imitate that. Imitate what you saw. That was one of the most, um, for me, that was one of the things that was, I was probably the most sensitive about, about that I have to be an example. Because uh, ask Cindy, I'm not always a good example. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a good example uh, uh, because I want the people to follow Christ as I follow him. The Apostle Paul had the integrity, the veracity to tell a church, you follow me as I follow Christ. <laughs> you have to be able to say that with integrity. You follow me. In other words, the implication of that is, hey, you know who I am following? I am following Christ. Join me. There better be integrity in that statement or don't make it, you see. And so it's the job of the church um, leaders to be an example. Then verse 17, what's your response? What's your response? You tell me. Two things are said there. Yeah. If you don't belong to church, who's your leaders? You. And you like it that way. <laughs> but in the Bible, it's clear. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As Now, here's the terrorizing part. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. When you trouble the elders with issues, I mean, especially if they're kind of self-focused issues, you trouble the church. You occupy their time. You, you got them focused in dealing with a problem. And I've had those opportunities, Jez has as well, where you're so involved in the trouble that has been made in the body of Christ, that guess what? You can't give much time to. You can't give much time to nurturing and feeding and caring for the sheep because you're, you're sometimes weary. Sometimes you've lost nights of sleep as an elder because of you're dealing with this particular trouble that exists in your church. Uh, and so what he's saying here is don't do that. Let them do it with joy. Let that, that elder say, I have gladness of the heart because God has called me to this position. And, and I have a flock. And it, it, we're people. The elders are people. You know, that we just, elders still sin, you know. They do sin. I know one of the things that our elders do every meeting now is they go around the circle and ask each other, how have you been doing with your relationship with the Lord? And they try to hold each other accountable, you know, but hey, we're, we're people. Elders are people. The difference is you're, you're never, uh, put, let me put it this way. As an elder, when you confess sin, you confess it immediately and you confess it wholeheartedly, you are a good example. Wait a minute, it was sin that got you into that. Yeah, you were a bad example then. But what you're exemplifying to the church is how should you deal with your sin? You confess your sin. And the elder must keep in mind that there is a day of reckoning. There's a day of accountability, you see. So now when you look at the sheet, uh, I've covered some of this already. How much time do I have? I've got some time. Uh, on page three, uh, let me just tell you the things that the Bible says uh, about what matters in the selection of elders in a church. What matters? Uh, the first thing is gender matters. And this is the one that our world would uh, be not happy about. If President Biden was here today and his entire staff First of all, he wouldn't remember he's here today, but if he was, uh, and his entire staff, this part they wouldn't like um, because uh, the Bible is very clear. Take a look at um, 
1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll explain why Paul wrote these words. He tells, I don't have to, he tells you. <laughs> 1 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, 1 Timothy is written by Paul, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, is written by Paul to help Timothy bring organization to the church in Ephesus. So he's, he's ordering the conduct of the church, and he wants Timothy to make sure that this order is followed. So he's talking about when he's, in the second chapter, or third chapter, or second chapter especially, he's talking about when the church is gathered together. When the church is gathered for worship, when the church is gathered together to hear the word of God, to observe the ordinances, to fellowship with one another, what should go on? Well, the first thing he said, and I'm not going to read it, is that the women must come to church dressed modestly. And basically the reason for that is because you don't want to uh, distract the attention from the purpose of the church that day. And that is to get your attention on Jesus. So you don't do anything that would draw attention away from Jesus. So he says, dress modestly. But then he also says, as you look at that passage, 2.9, uh, he says, um, oh, where am I? Yeah, 2.9. Likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments. Keep in mind, ladies, he's talking about when the church is gathered together. This is a gathering of the church. But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Where? Where is he talking about? In the church. In the church service. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now he's going to tell you why. And he gives you two reasons. Two reasons. The order of creation is the first reason. Look at what he says in verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And remember, even though Eve was the one in which the whole process of sin began with Satan tempting Eve, and even though she sinned first, she did, you know. Who's to blame? What is first? Someone read Romans 5 and verse 12. If you got it, read it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So it says sin came into the world by one man, Adam. He's described theologically as our federal head. He represented us. And when he sinned, all of his progeny now have a bent in their heart towards sin. We all sin. He sinned, and now we all sin. But he was in charge. So the blame for the sin goes to who? Matter of fact, the Bible implies he was standing next to her during this temptation thing. That's bad leadership. <laughs> that's, that's not courageous leadership. That's bad leadership. But... When the sin occurred, he committed the sin too, didn't he? And as a result, sin is brought to everybody. But the reason that Paul is saying, I, I don't allow a woman to teach, is because of the order of creation. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve. In, um, in chapter 2 and verse 18, God says it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will create for him uh, a complementary or a, a one who correlates with him to be his co-leader. Is that what it said? No, to be his helper. The word helper there, just like it's the word like parakleo in the New Testament, it means to come alongside and assist. He has a job. He's going to be the head of his family. He's got to have someone who comes alongside and assists you see. And so in marriage, that's her role. So the order of creation is the first reason he gives. The second reason he gives uh, is uh, the events of the fall. So it's the order of creation, the events of the fall, 
He says in verse 14, it was not Adam was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So for those two reasons, now notice that the reasons are not cultural. He doesn't say, I don't want a woman to exercise an authority over the church because you know, ladies in Ephesus, you guys have been off the chain. You've been dictatorial and dominant. And you're overruling the men. It was not, the, the women were not the problem in this church. Ladies, you'll be happy to hear that. Let me show you the problem in this church. Chapter 1 and verse 3. This will encourage all the ladies here. Maybe. <laughs> he says, I urge you upon the, my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus, Paul talking to Timothy, so that you may instruct certain what? Men not to teach strange doctrines. So the problem was men, not the women. So it wasn't Paul reacting to strange doctrines being taught by the women of the church. I've heard that. That's not what he was. He's just reacting to the events of the fall. And he's not looking at any cultural reason. So that this, like I said, would be in contradiction to everything our, our culture stands for. All right, so in addition to that, you can read this. This is the great stuff here. Uh, I just don't have any time to get it. But in addition to the gender mattering, desire matters, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. Any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Uh, an elder, uh, if I'm with the other elders and we're examining someone, we ask them that question. Why do you want to be an elder? Well, I don't think you guys are doing a good enough job. I would like to come on board so I could straighten things out. Matter of fact, I have a letter from my wife that says I'd make an excellent elder. You're done. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> when I'm going to have lunch with you? <laughs> uh, if you have a reason other than this reason, I have come to die for the sake of the church. I have a strong desire to serve the body of Christ there's some other reason you want to be an elder oh I like the power thing I like the authority thing hey let me tell you it's not cracked up to be what you think it is it's hard sometimes it's heartbreaking sometimes it causes depression but that's what you're willing to do you're willing to die so the man has to have a desire if you approach a man and say you know We've been watching you, brother, and uh, we think you could be an elder. Ah, you know what? I've done my stuff already. Uh, but, but if you don't, our Constitution says we have to have seven. Where did you get that? <laughs> how do you know how many elders the Holy Spirit's going to raise up in a church? You only know that after the fact. So... You, you twist the arm of a guy who's not willing, but you've got to have seven. And he seems like he's pretty experienced, so you get him in that office. You have just brought great harm to the body of Christ. You've got an unqualified person in a leadership position. And the only, reason, the only reason he's there is you talked him into it. So when we would interview someone, if there was a reluctance or if they said, you know, really, some of them, would, we wanted them even more because they would say something like this. You know what, gentlemen, I would love to be an elder, but I've got four children right now and I'm trying to do my best to nurture them and raise them and it's taking all of my time. I'm afraid I could not do the job as best as I could. We want him even more, <laughs> but we will wait patiently for him. You see what I'm saying? But the guy who wants to barge his way into the office and he wants to change the elders and they're not doing a good job and, you know, that is entirely an incorrect, uh, compelling urgency for the office, you know. In addition to that, he has to have not only desire but character matters. Verse 2, an overseer must be above approach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Then he mentions a skill, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, doesn't strike out, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. 
Uh, so he's got to have character qualities that match that of Christ-like character. He has to have these things. Not perfectly. If you're looking for perfection, you're never going to find an elder. There are no perfect elders. But what's he like in the present? Do you see a consistency in his life of following Christ? Uh, skills matter. Uh, there's a skill mentioned there in, uh, when he says uh, in verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Um, managing implies, get this, lack of perfection in his home. He had nothing to manage if everything is great. <laughs> but he's got a household uh, of a wife and children who all entered this world as what? Sinners. And sometimes he's got one converted. That's his wife. <laughs> but he's got a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and a six-year-old. We don't know where they're at yet. You see. So if you look at an elder and you say, he must make sure there's, his household is never troubled. All of his kids walk behind him in line, and they all sit in the chairs. They take out Bibles. They're seven years old. They take notes and everything else. They know the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that stuff. Uh, no. The idea is, does he manage the trouble that inevitably occurs in his home? Does he manage it? How does he do it? Or is he completely kind of laid back? Oh, well, these kids, I don't know what to do. Or is he autocratic? Today I have come to kill all of you children because of your behavior. You know, what kind of a guy is he in his leadership role? And I, I believe the best way to lead in a church is situationally. Because sometimes I am autocratic. If someone were to come in and say, Pastor, uh, I'd like to marry this unbelieving person. I'd say no, with the authority of Christ. But if somebody comes to me and wants to seek my advice, uh, he doesn't have to get his permission from me to take a certain job or to live a certain place. Um, so your leadership is situation. What's the situation called for? That's the smartest way to be a leader. If you're autocratic all the time, nobody wants to be around you. If you're democratic to a fault, let's vote, let's vote, folks. <laughs> or you're laissez-faire, hands off, situational. So I, anyways, you read this stuff. Um, I just wanted to make sure you understood that that's the, that's the big difference that we have here. We're already late. Uh, you should, if you would have been in the sermon today, you would have been already on your way home, but sorry about that. And um, I'm sorry I didn't allow enough question time today. I wish I would have. Uh, we will next week. How's that? I promise. Hold me to that promise, Cindy. But you can feel free to ask me a question as we travel, because i got to go back. I've got a meeting. You have to go. Yours going too, right? We have a special dinner or something. A luncheon. A luncheon for Raul Williams. Okay. Oh, uh, in case you, I don't know how many know this. Um, some of you know Steve Henderson. He went to be with the Lord this week. So I just want to make sure everybody knows that. There'll be a memorial service for him in October. So listen up for that. Okay. Have a good day.